Let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study about you. We thank you for your written word, for your spirit. We ask that your spirit come and be with us today as we study and we talk about you. May we honor you. May we know a little bit more about you because of this discussion. Help us that we may help others who are around us to come to know you better. Amen. Today's lesson is lesson number six, Christ's death and the law. I'm reminded of the text. Um, I'm going to read from Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. It says, look on Lord's patience as the opportunity he has given you to be saved. Just as our dear friend Paul wrote to you, using the wisdom that God gave him. This is what he says in all his letters when he writes on the subject. There are some difficult things in his letters, which ignorant and unstable people explain falsely, as they do with other passages of the scriptures. So they bring on their own destruction. Just saying that um, if you find that I have found these things to be difficult, and that I'm unstable and ignorant, please bear with and um, we'll try to, to move on, okay? Reading through the quarterly, I, w- I was very, um, my understanding of, this, of the scriptures presented were much different than what, say, the quarterly was presenting. And so I had to remind myself also of Mark 9, 38 through 40. John said to him, Teacher, we saw a man who is driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he doesn't belong to our group. 39. Do not try to stop him, Jesus told them, because no one who performs a miracle in my name will be able to soon afterward say evil things about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. We're all in the same boat. And um, I would like to give the authors of the Lesson Quarterly gracious wide birth for their own understanding. You know, I have some good Christian co-workers in my office who don't believe the way I do. Is that because they're wrong or is it because I'm graced with some different knowledge that I appreciate very much? And so I'd like to appreciate it or approach it in that realm in that I'm sorry that they have that understanding because I think it's it's much much more beneficial to understand God as a God of love completely. Um, reading the memory text, the memory text is from Romans 7.4. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Sabbath afternoon lesson begins with a little story. I'll read the first three paragraphs. A woman is driving way over the speed limit. Sounds like others. Anyway, suddenly she sees in her rearview mirror the flashing red and blue lights of a police car and hears the familiar wail of the siren. She pulls over, grabs her purse, and takes out a driver's license. The police officer approaches, takes her license, and returns to his car. She wonders how much the ticket's going to be. She was way over the speed limit. She also worries about how she will be able to pay it. A few minutes later, the police officer comes back and says, Okay, miss, what we are going to do so that you don't have to face the penalty of the law again is abolish the law. You no longer have to worry about the speed limit. Question. What is the difference between the speed limit and the law of God? Imposed. The speed limit is imposed, and God's law is? A natural law. Because I like alliteration, these other funny words, I think one is enacted and one is inherent. If the law was an enacted law, the law could be done away with to suit a change in circumstances, right? Why can't the law of God be changed? Okay, because God doesn't change. Now, we have a text to to that effect, and it says, I I change not, therefore you're not destroyed. Meaning that he's for their benefit, 
And that's where that text comes from. So he doesn't change. So thankfully, he's a God of love. He's always wills to be a God of love. And he is a God of love. He is not just loving. He is love personified. So if you did away with God's law, what would happen? Life would cease. My thoughts exactly. The universe would be different. It couldn't it could sustain itself. So turning to Friday's lesson, I realize we started out on Saturday afternoons. First it leads with a paragraph from Mrs. White's writings. And then there's a, a, this next paragraph. It says, In summary, the death of Jesus powerfully demonstrated the permanence of God's law. No question at all. The next sentence. When our first parents sinned, God could have abolished his laws and taken away the penalties for a violation. I have in my lesson. No, no, no. You know? He couldn't have done that. The universe would have ceased to exist at, if it's based on his law, on his, who he is, and if he is changed, then everything about the universe has changed. He is no longer the sustainer of the universe. He's no longer, uh, love is seeking the best interest of another. He is no longer looking out for the universe. Well, but this lesson treats it like Earth is the only planet out there, and God was only concerned with Earth, not the rest of the universe. And I think a lot of times in our lesson it's like that. It treats, it treats things like we are the only ones that matter to God. That's not true. Or that sin began here. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh, so this week's lesson, as you've mentioned, assumes that God's law is enacted. They also assume that there is one law. There are two laws. God's law and Lucifer's law. And if you confuse those and ascribe everything that happens to us based on God's law, you will come to a, diff a much different impression of, of who God is. So... Because what happens is now you start ascribing to God attributes of the adversary. So what would you consider Lucifer's law? The law of sin and death. The, the law of his kingdom. The law of selfishness in which survival of myself is at the expense of all others. Survival of the fittest is the terminology in scientific literature or whatever, but essentially that's the law of self. Yes? Unfortunately, every single law broken is what's wrong with our world right now. In other words, every one of those, one of those commandments is broken now and that's what our whole problem with our world is, basically. And the law of God is how we're built. And I like to think of the Ten Commandments as the Ten Descriptions because if you are truly one with the Father, as Christ would have us to be one with the Father, then we will not, we will not, we will not, rather than imposed or, or enacted or whatever. At the cross, the epitome of both of these laws was evidenced. Christ's death demonstrated the law of God's kingdom, the kingdom of love, and Satan demonstrated the law of his kingdom, the law, the, the law of sin and death. There's a passage from Desire of Ages from a lady I, I now respect. For many years I hated her because I was beaten on the head by many passages that went against my grain or something. At the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to face. Here was her crowning manifestation. Christ had lived only to comfort and bless, and in putting him to death, Satan manifested the malignity of his hatred against God. He made it evident that the real purpose of his rebellion was to dethrone God and destroy him through whom the love of God was shown. So, the law of love, the law of selfishness. And that was the epitome 
in the universe. Yes. We know that God forgives us. Thank you for it, but He, in turn, wants us to forgive others. He would like us to be like Him. He would like us to be like Him, that's right. Okay. And if truly we are like Him, we will, you know, like, like others or be... Mm, Maybe like them, not like how they act. I had been struggling with this lesson for about six weeks and had written all these things in my quarterly. And I got an email this week from Tim. I think he was a little worried. (laughs) And it's like, Wendell, have you looked at the lesson? You know, I could only say, yes, I have. I'm sorry. And so I had already... (laughs) put most of this stuff in my notes, and I wrote back to him and says, you've been reading my notes. Except he, he sent me a couple passages which I was appreciative of. One is from That I May Know Him, page 15. It is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence, yet enough may be understood concerning both the origin and the final disposition of sin to make fully manifest the justice and benevolence of God in all his dealings with evil. Nothing is more plainly taught in Scripture than that God was in no wise responsible for the entrance of sin. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Our only definition of sin is that given in the Word of God, it's a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4, or as in other translations, lawlessness, is the outworking of a principle at work and at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. So, two opposing principles. And a a final passage um, from Education, page 190. The Bible is its own expositor, Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy, or two laws and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life he reveals himself, the one or the other, of the two antagonistic motives, and how, whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. You know, I have some friends who are great people and I, I, I struggle with it because they are making decisions by their life choices, as we all are, to grow in grace or to grow in an opposite direction. All right, for those of you who have the quarterly, let's turn to Sunday's lesson. It begins with Romans 7, 1 through 6. I'll read Romans 7, 1 through 6. Certainly you will understand what I am about to say, my brothers, because all of you know about the law. The law rules over people only as long as they live. A married woman, for example, is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, then she is free from the law that bound her to him. So then if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, she'll be called an adulteress. But if if her husband dies, she is legally free woman and does not commit adultery if she marries another man. That is how it is with you, my brothers. As far as the law is concerned, you also have died because you are part of the body of Christ. And now you belong to him who is raised from death in order that we might be useful in the service of God. It goes on. The lesson quarterly in that first paragraph makes a point that I think is very true. And I agree with the lesson quarterly in a few spots. So I have to emphasize those spots where I agree. And that is the emphasis is on the living in this instance. It's none of the dead. We are alive in Christ. So, 
just a side note that I think ties in well with our understanding of death. Why are the dead no longer under the law? They can't do anything. They're underground, but... Okay, so... Are they still in the universe? Where are they? No. Okay, what is a human being? What is a human being? Body and soul. And breath. So I have an awareness of someone right now who is in the intensive care unit who is on a machine and they have a body and they have breath because the machine has given it to him, but there's nothing happening from here up. Are they there? <laughs> they are no longer there. Their psyche, their, their mind is gone. They are waiting for a harvest of their viable organs for someone else. They have departed. They are no longer in this universe. Their body's here, but they are no longer here. If they were not sleeping, if they had gone immediately to some other of one of God's realms, would they still be under God's law? Yes. What do you mean if they went into one of God's other realms? If they suddenly were transported at death... To heaven. But that doesn't happen. <laughs> Listen. If they were, they would be under God's law. Well, sure. This argument in Paul's writings would make no sense. Right? So, just a sidelight. I mean, the, your whole belief system is a unified whole that makes sense. Okay? This goes along with the belief that they are not here. Otherwise, they still would be under God's law of love. The second paragraph um, says the old self is under the law of this world. And I agree with that. I'm glad that at least they, there is a law of this world and they understand that. In the fourth paragraph, the guide says, the believer is now married to Christ means that the law is no longer an instrument of condemnation. The believer in Jesus is free from condemnation of the law because he or she is covered in the righteousness of Jesus. What does that mean? He's covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Hard to explain Rightly understood, it means that the character of Jesus is interwoven into the, the fibers of uh, the person's character. Ah, so he is God, he is Christ through and through. It's not a wrapper. Shielded, uh, yeah. It's not a wrapper. Correct. Uh, recently we had Easter, and they had Easter eggs and Easter bunnies and all sorts of stuff, and they came in these little foil wrappers. And when you open it up, you expected something good inside. Okay? Because it was through and through something that was good. If you had a wrapper and it was wrapped over something that was bad, you would not be very happy with it. I think you can walk away from God at any time. I think we all ultimately will always have freedom to walk away. It will not make sense to us to do it. Some people use the texts to, quote, prove. Quote, uh, uh, once saved, always saved. Right. Right. I think we will always have free will. If, if God is a God of love, and the, the universe is based on love, love cannot be coerced. So we will always have the opportunity to walk away. Will not make sense to us, but we have that opportunity. Just like Lucifer had that opportunity in heaven, and he did walk away. Romans 12.2 Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to Him, and is perfect. It's not a candy wrapper. 
It's through and through. The next paragraph ends by saying the law no longer holds him or her in the grip of condemnation because the person now belongs to Jesus. Just as the MRI scanner downtown where I work no longer condemns a person who has a tumor that has disappeared. Well, does the MRI scanner condemn you? No. It doesn't condemn you. The tumor condemns you. Right. The MRI merely reveals it. Just like the law. Correct. Reveals who you are. Okay? We, we use the law to hit people over the head. And we use the law in a, as an instrument rather than a mirror. Let me ask a question. Sure. In this lesson, when it says Christ's death and the law, specifically what law is it talking about? I think it is God's law. Which is? The law of love. So it's not referring to the Ten Commandments. Oh, whoa. Okay. So here's God's law and the Ten Commandments is a distillation for humans of his law. Everything in the Ten Commandments is a revelation of what God is like. Now, Christ gave us a synopsis of that by saying, love God, the first four precepts, and love man as yourself, the second six. Okay? So, yes, it's talking about the Ten Commandments, it's talking, but that is God's law, it's just a verbalization of God is love. In the past, when this was taught, uh-huh. I always felt that it was referring to the Ten Commandments. When our church it, has taught this in the past. And I think that many people have divided up God into good and bad and other segments. And so consequently, they have the Ten Commandments and the ceremonies and whatevers. Okay, But as we have read before in, in this class, if man would have kept the precepts of the law. He never would have had to be given the law of circumcision. And if he would have kept the precepts embodied by the command of circumcision, he never would have had to have the Ten Commandments spoken from the the mountain or the additional requirements placed on the children of Israel. Now, unfortunately, I haven't got that little quote here, but you know we've read it so many times in this class. It is all one thing. And the only thing that goes away is things that are forward-looking to an event or something. No, it does not make sense for me to be killing lambs in my backyard every spring, sacrificing in anticipation of the Lamb of God who is going to come. Because He has come. But the other aspects do make sense. The health laws which God revealed to the children of Israel... Is it something where I have to do this or that or whatever? I don't think so, but it doesn't make sense for me to go out and eat certain things or stay up late or do many other things. And I'm not trying to to throw stones at anybody else. I tend to try to throw stones at me. But if I don't exercise a certain number of minutes a week, I hurt all over. Do church doctrines represent the law? I think church, for me, okay, this is my, this is Wendell Moses speaking here. It's not, I'm not a representative of come and reason anymore. I'm, uh, this is something that's, is from, I'm giving my opinion. I think church doctrines are descriptions of rules of an association. And the, and the writings of Ellen White. And they're based on biblical principles and the writings of both biblical and extra biblical sources. Do I hold them with the same standard that I do of love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself? No. They do make reasonable sense for an association of God's children. But just because I ascribe to 28 statements that outline the rules of my association does not mean that I'm throwing stones at my coworker who has a different set of rules for their association and you know what i think i'm going to see them in heaven 
Because as of now, it appears to me that they are following God as his children. And I think it's unfortunate that they have some concepts of God which make him out to be a monster. Because so do we. Okay? Some of our beliefs about how we see the end of this world happening, to me, are anathema. Whatever that word means. You know. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> but let me ask you something. Now, knowing who Sister White is, we know who Sister White is. I think most of us in the room do. Right. Do we have to believe her writings and accept her to be a part of the remnant church? That has not been declared by one of the 28 fundamental beliefs, except that it was listed as a gift to God's church. Okay? So her statements to say that she does not see that as a test of fellowship, I think, it, I think it's... Okay, my sojourn. Okay? I grew up in an Adventist home. My, I was, I think, third generation Adventist. My great-grandmother came over from... Norway, she was a sheep herder up in the hills of the, of Norway, or cows or whatever it was that she was herding in the in the the hills of Norway, and reading her Bible all summer. And she came to the Sabbath, and she came down to her village and said, "We gotta keep Sabbath." They said no, and so she she was thrown out. She eventually found her way to America, and she became an Adventist. Found out that other people were doing the same thing. And um, so I grew up in this community of um, Adventism, and. Like many other people in the 50s, I was in a very culturally restricted environment. And that dear lady called Egg White was hit over my head, especially with a volume which I think is never should have been published, Messages to Young People. And they hit me over the head over and over and over again, and I hated this woman. I came to this college and graduated with two different degrees here took religion classes and everything else, and I hated that woman. And when her writings became available on a CD, I bought one of the very first copies because to buy all of her books cost about, at that time, about 5000 bucks, and I could get all of her writings for 300 bucks on a CD. It's now free, but anyway. And every time someone quoted from her, I looked the quote up in her writings and read the entire thing from these times or review or whatever it was. And I was converted to that woman that she was not the crazy woman I thought she was. There are certain things that I don't think early Christians should read from her writings. They were written to seasoned Christians who know that they were saved by faith. And if you read them before you understand that, you will start hitting people on the head with fake baloney or something. And I think that that is the wrong thing. And so I now have the utmost respect for this person. Okay? I have a, I have a hard time. God has been doing this over and over again to me. I went to medical school at a, at a medical school out in California called Loma Linda. And there was a teacher that I was required to listen to. His name is Graham Maxwell. And I would walk into his class. His assignment was, read this book and say what it says about God. I would walk into his class. Me and my best friend would walk into his class, sit down, raise our hands. He would never answer our, our hands and we'd walk out. Because we were so belligerent to that poor guy that he knew that nothing that came out of my mouth was going to be a positive thing. <laughs> I then was assigned by my pastor in North Carolina the task of covering the Old Testament for a Bible class for new believers who had been just baptized into our church. And I was scrambling. I was scrambling for something that went, went through, book by book, through the whole Old Testament. And someone said, well, Graham Maxwell did that. And so I got his cassettes and I started listening to him. And when I went back out to Loma Linda, I, I found him and I apologized to him because I was wrong. And I think we all have our sojourns and some people are not there yet. But do I believe that you should believe in Mrs. White? 
I think she's a wonderful woman. And if you read what she truly wrote in the five main volumes, you will get a picture of God that's like no other. But if you pick, pick out the testimonies to the church, volume, whatever, or the manuscript writings, I think you'll be having a hard time. Yeah, to, take, to take your question a step further, Tina, uh, Zechariah 13 tells us that there will be people in heaven that won't know who Jesus is. They won't know who Jesus of Nazareth is. So to ascribe the importance of a, a belief in one woman who, who wrote, who was a very prolific writer 150 years ago, um, in my mind, is inconsequential because, you know, Romans tells us that everything that we can know about God can be seen through nature. His eternal qualities, His power, His love, His grace. And there, are, there will be some on earth who, who that's, the only, that's the only understanding of God that they have ever seen. And they, they got it. They, they completely understood that God is love. And they, they manifest that in their own lives. And when they get to heaven, they're going to see this guy with scars in his hands and feet and sides. And say, who are you? What happened? Well, I, I believe all that. But what I'm saying, not a test of salvation. I just said to be a part of the remnant church. Do you need to believe in Sister White? I, no. I agree 100%. No, I don't. I, I don't think we need to believe in her. Define the remnant no. church. I mean, the, the God's remnant yeah. church. Yeah. I, I, don't, I do not think you need to believe in Mrs. White. Well, I think uh, that brought up that people should be baptized. Until whatever. Whatever. They're hitting you over the head with another piece of baloney. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think the Ellen G. White is, she calls herself the lesser light so mm-hmm. really it's not that she says the Bible is more important. Right. I, I think if you start making her a, a element of whatever, I think you've gone the wrong way. Wow, how do we get off that? Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry for the, for the diatribe or, or the, the, the sojourn, but... Um, The second paragraph in Monday's lesson says, The function of the law depends on the person with whom it is associated. The same knife, for instance, can be used by a surgeon to heal or by a murderer to kill. I'd have a hard time with my scalpel, but anyway. I guess if they laid real still, I could do it. In the same way, a thief who breaks the law to steal someone's purse will stand in a different relationship to the law than will the one whom the law was meant to protect, the owner of the purse. This question, how does an enacted law protect the purse owner? Retribution, which is? Justice. Okay, justice. Penalty. Human justice. How does that protect them? Well, I mean, what's it trying to do? It's trying to dissuade the criminal. Okay. So define what was bad, okay, so in this case someone has no clue, okay. The second thing is it tries to engender fear, okay, or mentally that you're supposed to not do this, all right. How does an inherent law protect the same purse holder? If the law is inherent, if that's how we're constructed, how does it protect the purse owner? The owner of the purse will suffer no character damage if their purse is stolen. Okay, so that's the purse owner. Mm-hmm. Okay, how does it protect them from the purse being stolen? It doesn't. It does if the thief is converted. Okay, and then the thief will act according to the golden rule, which says, "I need to be looking out for their interest more than mine." And it will become part of their DNA. So, reading a little passage from, I don't know where this came from, Mount of Blessing, I think. The will of God is expressed in the precepts of his holy law, and the principles of this law are the principles of heaven. The angels of heaven attain unto no higher knowledge than to know the will of God, and do his will is the highest service that can engage their powers. But in heaven... Service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not as servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience is to them no drudgery. Love for God makes their service a joy, so in every soul wherein Christ the hope of glory dwells, his words are re-echoed, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So, 
inherent. If it's part of my being, I don't care if there's one policeman out there or 20 policemen out there, if it's, if it's something that's a principle. Now, I think, just personally, that a speed limit is not inherent. The laws of gravity, the laws of motion, other things are inherent. And I might drive unsafely if I drive at any speed that I so choose. So I may not be able to be safe around someone else. And also, not everyone has my same reflexes. And probably my reflexes are not as good as my son's, who's about yay many years younger. But the speed limit, I think, is an imposed law for control. That same paragraph. However, in the same way that God's retributive vengeance does not stop him from being a God of love, the law's function as an agent of sin and death does not make it sinful. Again, I put wrong, wrong, wrong. Is God a God of retributive vengeance? No. Um, hey, we have to define, define his vengeance. So Isaiah tells us his vengeance is healing us from sin. That's God's vengeance. And that's retributive. It's retributive against the law of Satan, the law of self. It reclaims us from sin. That, that's God's retributive vengeance. And then the author here is, is under the assumption that, that God, God's retributive vengeance is, is classified as human's retributive vengeance. And it isn't. If it's as they portray, and God is a God of force, then everything goes out the window. Right. It does make a difference whether you see it as inherent into how God is, how the universe is, or whether it's enacted. The bottom pink question says, how do you relate to the law when you violate it? I would just like to ask a medical question. How do you relate to the MRI scanner when you have a tumor? When you go into the scanner, is there any concern in your mind? Yes. Sure. Is it because you think the scanner is going to get you? Because the scanner is going to reveal what's wrong. Yes. And yet, if I was really sick, okay, and had something wrong with me, I'd really like to find out what's wrong. Okay? Some things are boogeymen that you don't want to know about sometimes, you know, because you don't know if you can handle it. But recently I had um, a physical. The hospital has a rule that says every two years a physician has to have a physical, otherwise they can't remain on the staff at the hospital. And so it, I was filling out my reappointment papers and, and it said, give the date of your last physical. And I did, and it was more than two years. And so they, bing, they shot it out and said, guess what? Go see your doctor. And so I got a phone call and went to see him. And I thought I was well. Had no fear going in to see him at all. He didn't find anything, thankfully. And so I still came out feeling okay. But if he would have found something, would I have been happy? I would have been happy that I was sick. But I would have been happy that he found it. Okay? If it was something that could be fixed. Okay? I've had a sojourn with this little, my right eye. I, I was walking up my dog up by community, hospital, by community um, church a few weeks back. And I looked up and noticed that the trees were blurry. And here I am walking down the sidewalk with my dog in front without, you know, I took him off the leash and I'm walking along. My wife is walking kind of beside me and I'm going, I'm doing my neuro exam, you know, to find out if I'd had a stroke or if I'd have had a visual field defect or whatever I had. And as soon as I got done with my little self-exam, I get on the phone and called a, a, a good friend who's had a retinal detachment and said, Hey, Rob, how'd it feel like for you? And he told me, he says, You know, here's, here's two non-ophthalmologists <laughs> talking about whether I had a retinal detachment or not. Okay? And we came to the conclusion that I didn't. And so then I remembered, Oh, yeah, my, my wife's cousin is a retinal specialist. Had the phone number on me, called him and said, Hey, Greg, I realize you're 200 miles away, but here's what's happening. And he says, get off the phone. 
Call whoever's on call and go and see the retinal specialist now. And they zapped my eye and all that sort of stuff. And I was happy when the, the retinal specialist says, I know what you have and I can fix it. And that's how we should be toward the law. The law can't fix it. The law is an MRI scanner. God can fix it. And if the law drives me to him, then thank God for the law. Psalms 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Or in Good News Version, examine me, O God, and know my mind. Test me. Discover my thoughts. Doesn't hear I know them. Find out if there's any evil in me and guide me in the everlasting way. That's what the law is all about. Tuesday's lesson, it talks about the power of the law. Romans 4.15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. What does that mean? Reading Romans 5.13, for unto the law, sin was in the world, but sin not imputed where there is no law. What does that mean? Romans 7.7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Couple questions. Where is there no law? Nowhere. Okay? So, even if we do not know there is a law, does that mean that it does not exist? Acts 17.30. God overlooked the times when people didn't know any better, but now he commands everyone everywhere to turn to him and change the way they think and act. Does that mean that God was holding punishment for evildoers until he figured out what his law was? Were they still dying even before they knew that? Romans five twelve through 14 the, the quarterly chose to quote one verse of that. I would like to read three verses. Sin came into the world through one man, and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death has spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. Verse 13. There was sin in the world before the law was given, but where there's no law, no account is kept of sins. Does that mean they're still not dying? Verse 14. But from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, death ruled over all human beings. Even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam did when he disobeyed God's command. Adam's a figure of the one who was to come. So death still reigned, even though there was an accounting sheet. Even though people didn't know all the particulars of his law had lost the understanding of the law. They were still dying. They were still on the wrong path. They still needed God's um, recreation. Those are the 28 fundamental beliefs. Are they part of the law of God? <laughs> Anyone? No. 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 That would mean that you would have to belong to the church that has the 28 beliefs in order to be saved. Correct. And, you know, we know that's not true. Although we have professors over at Southern, one that says that. Well, that's not my understanding. Let's put it that way. Okay? The first paragraph says, so the law is used to define, this is on Tuesday's lesson, so the law is used to define sin. Had it not been for God's law, there would be no absolute method of knowing what actions were acceptable were unacceptable to him. And though sin cannot exist without the law, Paul makes it clear that the law is not a willing partner of sin. So what is killing me? The law? No. Sin. So I'm dying not because of the law. I'm dying because of sin. The law is a diagnostic instrument. What about the angels in heaven? Did they know what they were supposed to do without a written law? Yes. Yes. 
Romans 7.13, But does this mean that what is good caused my death? By no means. It was sin that did it. By using what is good, sin brought death to me in order that its true nature as sin might be revealed. And so by means of the commandment, sin is shown to be even more terribly sinful. So it makes awareness of how bad it is. It's not the instrument of death. Uh, going on, uh, this, the, the quarterly was just amazing. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four through 58 just reading a portion of it. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the lesson says, Had it not been for the law, there would be no death, because it would be impossible to define sin. Now, the idea of the terminal condition. Well, also... It, for which law? It, it's true that had it not been for the law... There'd be no death because we wouldn't be existing. But what they're saying is, oh, if, if God hadn't written the law, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't be guilty. And so take away the written record and then you, it, nothing bad would happen. No. If I drink poison, I'm going to die no matter if there's a label on, it, on the poison or not. But that is implying that Lucifer didn't sin. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it just. It's ludicrous. The whole en enacted versus inherent law issue comes over and over again throughout this lesson. Just because you don't know the danger doesn't mean danger does not exist. You're able to recognize danger and find a cure, which is Christ, when you are aware of the danger you're in. And we should be thankful for guardrails and warning signs. I went to Italy for two months of my training. This second. Went to Italy for two months of my training, and my, my daughter turned seven about, I don't know, three days or five days after we got there. My son was five, okay? And so my, my wife was taking care of, she didn't speak Italian, I didn't speak Italian. We're in this totally Italian village, only one person I found the entire time there that could speak Italian, and it was very broken. And she was with these two small children all the time, and I was off working at the hospital, and I'd come home, and she would be very thankful for a break from taking care of the two kids. And so on the weekend, I decided to give her a break. And I took the two kids up on this cable car up into the Alps, the Dolomites. And we get off of this cable car and we go out and here's this map. And you can take all these little trails up there on, t in, on top of this mountain. And it was great. And so it said there was a cross. And we had seen the cross from the valley. And so it's like, oh, let's go look at the cross. And so the trail was well marked. And so the kids just took off running. And so I kind of lazed it around, looked, looked with binoculars, took pictures, all that sort of stuff. And I'm, you know, yeah, they're on their trail and I'll catch up with them. And I look out and they, yeah, they were out at the cross. And then I looked at how they got there. There was a narrow path that was probably about... Four feet wide. The top of the mountain was about four feet wide, with a little narrow path on top of it between the rocks. And on either side was a fall off at at least 500 feet, <laughs> if not 1,000 feet. And my little five year old and seven year old were out there dancing around this cross, having gotten there before their dad got there. The next day, I went to my professor, my um, attending surgeon who was teaching me and said, you know, they don't have anything up there. There's no guardrails. There's nothing. And his comment was, if you need a guardrail, you don't belong up there. <laughs> and I think that's how we are with the law. We want to do away with everything, but we can only do away with that if we have internal guardrails. Okay, I will create a clean heart and they're going to put his law in our hearts. That's the promise. You know, a covenant to me is a, a, a list of promises that two parties are making. The new covenant is God's promises to us that I will do this for you. I'm going to recreate you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to create you normal. It seems like that the lesson writers do not understand that the law existed. Before God created. Yes. Correct. Yes. The law was from eternity. 
That's who God is. The law is a description of what God is. Now we have subsets, just like we have subsets in our own families and everything else of rules within our family to make them work well. But those are enacted things that are guardians of major principles. Those are descriptions. Yeah. They are not the principles themselves. And it can never be confined on tablets of stone or additional expositions of you know, Jewish writings or in 28 fundamental beliefs. It's too big. It's, it's, it's bigger than the universe. The clock marches on and we are about done. On Wednesday's lesson, there, I would like to close with this. And that is, it starts out talking about the impotent law. The law is, is truly powerless. It says, though in one sense we saw the law empower sin in another way, real way, the law is terribly impotent. How can the same object be both powerful and impotent at the same time? It can diagnose, but it cannot heal. Okay? It's a diagnostic instrument. It's not meant to be a healing instrument. We don't, we don't send people to the MRI scanner to get well. We send them to, to figure out what's wrong. Here again, the difference is, lies not in the law, but in the person. For the one who discovers that he is a sinner, the law forces him to acknowledge that he is going against God's will. What is God's will? That we be healed. That we be healed. Do you have a text for that? All come to repentance. Or... That we all be saved. Okay? That's God's will. The last sentence of the paragraph on Thursday's lesson talks about the law demands total and complete conformity, and whoever has always given that except Jesus. It's not conformity, it's unity. God's will for us is unity. As in John seventeen twenty one, I pray that they all may be one, Father. May they be in us just as you are in me and I am you. May they be ones who the world will believe that you sent me. Healed, unified, normal. Elsewhere in the lesson it talked about a normal human being. There's no more normal human beings. Not until the earth is created new will we have normal again. Okay? Normal is healed, saved, restored with the law of God in our hearts, not on an external thou shalt. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of learning about you. We ask that we have ears to hear, eyes to see. May we hear your Spirit speak to us. May we be defenders of you. May we know you better. May we be gracious to those who do not know you. May we know how to reach them with knowledge of you. Amen.